Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody in between. Welcome back to the Stu Simpson Show podcast. And today we've got a very good friend of mine, the fantastic, the melodious Sol Rose. Hello, Sol. How are you? Well, good afternoon, good evening. And if it's uh, a little earlier, good morning. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, well, how, you just got back from a gig. How was it? Uh, it was lovely. Really nice. So good to be playing music live again after all the time that we weren't. Yes. Well, we still we still haven't done that yet, but I'm sure it'll happen at some point soon. Well, maybe not soon, but some point. <laughs> yeah, some point. We'll get to it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm just trying to put money back in the bank account. That's kind of the that's the most difficult thing at the moment. So, is that is that what you've been doing recently? Or how how have you been um, coping with the lockdown and actually making some money as a full time working musician? What you've been up to to yeah keep going? Got got really lucky. So I've been involved in a project and. Um, with a guy called Mike Betterson, who um, runs an arts company called Blaze Arts, and uh, his right-hand man, a lad called Rupert Philbrick, and um, they run a, a regular weekly youth band in Teesdale called Cream Tees, who are really good and have played at Sidmouth and Whitby and stuff like that. And uh, Mike was really keen to set the, a similar thing up in Weirdale, and when he found out that I lived there, um, he got in touch and we set up uh, a youth band called Weird Aliens. And it's Arts Council funded and uh, that kept going right through lockdown. So that was um, um, on Zoom for an awful lot of it. But the last academic term was actually back in person in uh, Walsingham Town Hall. So that just about ticked me over and also my partner's a doctor. Yeah. Oh, that's always helpful, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, I kind of rushed in there to the interview, assuming that everyone in the world knows who you are, but maybe they don't. Come, you're a bit of a poly—is it a polyglot or a polymath? I think a polymath. That's the one. Uh, where you basically you are a person of wide learning and great understanding, but most people might know you as a melodium player. But there's so much more to what you do. Um, can you tell us who is Sol Rose and uh, what is it you do? Yeah, I, I, well, I'm self-employed, which means that you just have to be good at lots of things, really. Primarily, yes, I'm a, a professional musician and I play uh, the melodion or diatonic button accordion, as it's uh, known. It's, it's cutest name, actually, is in Italian. It's organetta, which is oh. little. Yeah, it's cute. Uh, which is a button squeeze box, and I've been playing that for 38 years. Not continuously, but it feels like it. Um, and uh, I've worked with lots of really good musicians in, over the years, including people like Martin Carthy, John Tam, Eliza Carthy, so on and so forth. Um, but I also dabble with a bit of acting. I've done a few film soundtracks. I've done a, a couple of bits of extraing in films, much like myself. I haven't been in Star Wars, so we'll leave that there. Um, and didn't in between much. times, I'm also a builder. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know about the building thing. Yeah. That's um, cool. great because my partner and I just bought a house in Ellendale. I just spent two months doing it up. And uh, uh, it's that's been great. That's been a real focus and because the um, the summer term pretty much ended, well, a couple of weeks before um, I really got going on the house. So um, once the teaching dried up, I was thinking, right, what do I do? And then... Well, my header bought me a house that needed work, so I just got cracking with it, and I've, I've uh, been doing a lot of that. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I am a singer, a um, musician, I'm a record producer, I'm a recording engineer, um, I dabble with building, 
I dabble with acting, whatever, whatever brings in the pennies and is creative, fundamentally. Where did it all begin? What, 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 was, what was little Sol? What was his dream when he was a little boy? Yes, well, actually, I can I can still remember the day when I when the the melodeon um, reached out to me. Um, so I was born into a folky family. Both my parents um, were Morris dancers. They're uh, they're retired now. They just dance tango, Argentinian tango, um, having danced Morris for the best part of forty years. Um, so I was born into that. So I was I was Morris dancing pretty much as soon as I could walk, um, and uh, there have always been instruments in the house, and I used to play the drums before I picked up the melodeon. Not terribly well, and uh, that, some might say that's still the case, but that's fine. Um, but I so I'm ten years old. I'm at Chippenham Folk Festival, and uh, with um, I think Mum's Morris team must have been Mum's Morris team because Dad had his squeeze box. And my dad plays the melodeon a little bit as well, and he they just finished a dance, and he thrust the box into my hand and said, "Hold this! I'm running. I'm off off for a wee." And off he ran. So I sat down on the floor to watch the next dance, and it was Martha Roden's Tuppenny Dish. Um, and their musician that day was one Mr. John Kirkpatrick, and he oh. started playing. And I swear to God, I was holding this squeeze box as as it should be held, strap on, and my hand, my left hand in the bass end strap, and my fingers on the buttons. And he started playing, and all the hair on my body stood on end, and my hands started moving. My arms, fingers, and hands started moving. Just started sympathetically moving with what he was playing, and I just went, "Ooh, what are you then? Let's find out about you." And yeah, 38 years later, I carve a living with that very instrument. Yeah. That sounds very, like almost a magical moment. Do you think it was mm. meant to be? It felt like it at the time. And although I'm not desperately wealthy, I'm, I mean, you know, I've had, I've had jobs. My last proper bit of employment, I was a medical sales rep for AstraZeneca and I was on hogs of cash and I had a fax and 80s and stuff like that. But I wasn't desperately happy. Um, and I got lured out of musical retirement by Paul Sartin and Benji Kirkpatrick to form the trio Faustus. And I didn't take much talking into it. And, you know, I was, like took a massive pay cut and a huge, it's a huge risk becoming self-employed and mm. thinking, well, I'll just tour all the time. It'll be fine. But I don't regret it at all. I think it's, uh, having played the corporate game, I wouldn't be in a hurry to play it again. I think it's um, quite soulless and I quite like it. The fact that everything I do these days is creative in one way or another, whether it's building, producing records, playing gigs, writing music, whatever it is, it's all every, there's a creative element to that. Whereas um, being a sales rep is just showing people shiny glass and saying use that instead of that because it's better. <laughs> so, how old were you when you went self-employed? What was it? When when did you make the big decision? Well, I, I did it twice. So I um, I qualified as a pharmacist in nineteen. I think 95 whenever it was and there you have to do a year's pre-registration before you can practice and I finished that and that week I left and went on tour with Watson Carthy got asked to join Watson Carthy with uh, Martin Carthy Normal Watson and Elias Carthy and so I I you know spent all that time training and qualifying and then immediately left and I was self-employed for half a dozen years till Eliza got signed to Warner Brothers and they wanted her to make a pop record and she, she rather sadly had to fire all her folk musicians. I can remember that quite well. 
And so I went back to pharmacy, did about a year, remembered that I hated it and I was crap at it. And um, uh, so I went off to be a medical sales rep because it looked easier and came with a big fat car and loads of money and stuff. So I did that for six years. Um, and then, so I guess my epiphany started in 2006. So I went to play five-a-side football on Valentine's Day, 2006, and a, a fat plasterer from uh, Deptford um, broke both bones in my left leg in a tackle. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, so I was off for a couple of months. And in that couple of months, because my car was automatic, um, you don't need your left leg to drive an automatic. So I was off sick, but I was off doing gigs. Don't tell my former employers AstraZeneca that because they might be upset. Um, anyway, and I, I got the bug. And then I went to Towersy. Uh, village festival that year 2006 and I'd just been asked to join Wack Weasel and did my first gig with them there I think we did two that weekend and I got back from a brilliant I mean Towsie's brilliant anyway but when you get to join pretty much the best Katie band in the country um, it's a it's quite a weekend so I got back from that weekend and um, there straight away Tuesday mornings after bank holiday Tuesday morning there's the boss on the phone going right regional meeting everyone come up the new market and we all got in a room and we got a, a corporate dressing down because Europe was at 85% sales versus target and I I wasn't in the mood so I started arguing about you know well what's what's the UK at sales versus target and he went well it's 95 and I went, well, that's acceptable isn't it he said yeah but it's not 100 I said, okay, interestingly, what's your region at then? And he went, well, we're at 114. And I went, yeah, and why is that? And he said, okay. And I said, yeah, what's my patch at? And he was 126% sales versus target. And I was like, so why am I sat here? He was like, <laughs> you can't come in here with that attitude. And I said, because I knew, and he didn't, that I had a tour with Waters and Carthy coming up because I'd rejoined that after Tim Van Eyken went off to be in Warhols. Yep. And Faustus had become a thing and we had a tour coming up and I was going to try and do it with annual leave and finishing early and, you know, I don't know, phoning in sick probably. Um, and that was October, November. It was looking like really difficult to do. And so there I am at the end of August getting this corporate dressing down for quite frankly nothing to do with me. And I just looked at him and went, do you know what? I quit. Excellent. <laughs> it was brilliant. One of the best moments of my life because his chin hit the floor and everyone else in the room clapped. They just went, that's amazing. <laughs> So I quit. And then I had one of the best bits of negotiation you'll ever come across. So he said, right, well, that's fine. We'll do We'll need it in writing. And, and obviously it's three months notice. And I said, it's not actually, it's one month notice. And he said, oh, no, 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 because those new contracts were rolled out just a couple of months ago, weren't they? And I said, oh, that's really interesting, Eddie. Which one's got my signature on it? And he went, you didn't sign it. And I said, no, you've been chasing me for weeks and I still haven't done it. So the one that's got my signature on says a month's notice. I said, but I'll do you a deal because actually it suits me to work until October. So I'll give you two months notice and then off I toddle. And he went, done. <laughs> I got another round of applause from everyone else in the room. And that was me done at AstraZeneca. <laughs> wow. Sounds like you've got not skills at juggling things so because you had that going on and you got faustus and then and then you took on warhorse as well after after tim is that right uh well it was a couple of people after tim i actually took over from um a really talented actor musician called uh, Eamon O'Dwyer. he's um he's still very much uh at large in the west end and he orchestrates and, and does all sorts of stuff for a clever musician um i did the year of 2011 so I think it went up in the West End in 06. No, not the West End, the National on the Olivier. 
uh, went up in 2006. It moved to the West End, I think, in 2008, something like that, or 2009, because by the time I got there in 2011, it had been there for a few years, a couple of years. Um, and that was one of life's most serendipitous moments. So in 2010, uh, we decided to park Faustus because Benji, our guitar player, uh, had got the gig with Seth Lakeman. Now, Seth Lakeman operates a retainer, and if you don't know what that is, it's basically you get a big lump like a salary from a band to be available whenever that band wants. So it makes planning untenable if someone's on a retainer. If Seth and the sort of tours that Seth Layton does are, are on a bigger scale than most, and they get booked really last minute, so two or three months' notice they'll book that tour. So if you've got a tour in the pipeline for 18 months with another band and it's all falling into place and it's all brilliant, and then Seth goes, right, Benjamin, he's screwed. He can't do anything about it. So he said, rather than do that, I'll just, we'll either, I'll either quit or we'll park it. And we were like, well, just don't quit. Don't, mm. don't do that. But go and have a year with Seth. Go on, off you go. And so uh, a couple of other things like that had happened. And I was looking in my diary for 2011 thinking, I've got half a dozen Kayleys. I'm going to have to go and get a job. There's just no doubt about it. And then John Tams phoned up and said, fancy coming to audition for Warhorse. We need a new song, man. I thought, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. And so I did. Off I toddled and auditioned for that. And that was brilliant in itself. That was um, a, a, an illuminating experience being auditioned for that role. They said, right, we need three things from a songman. The first of which is that you can play the melodeon. Now, that, we know you can do that. That's fine. The second of which is that you can sing and play the melodeon at the same time, which actually isn't as easy as it might at first appear because the melodeon is a breathing instrument. It plays a different note. Um, so if you push one button and move the bellows inwards, it plays one note. And then if you pull the bellows but press the same button, it plays a different note, right? So it's a diatonic instrument. And what that means is that if you push one button and squeeze the bellows inwards, you get one note. But if you push the same button and pull the bellows outwards, you get a different note, which means that the instrument breathes. And so people actually find it really difficult to sing with. I know melodeon players who breathe with their instrument, but so they, by the time they finish a set of reels, are literally hyperventilating. It's quite funny. Yeah. Anyway, so one, you need to be able to play the melodeon. Two, you need to be able to sing. And here was the third one. You need to be able to do both of those things and walk across the stage, across anywhere, but in this instance, across the stage. And they had literally auditioned people who could play the melodeon, could sing, but they were so rooted to the spot with concentration that they couldn't walk. <laughs> Utterly brilliant. Um, and and then they said, the only other thing we've been caught out with is, I hope you don't find this insulting, but the lid of this piano goes up. They said, if I play you a few notes, can you sing them back to me? And I was like, really? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we've got caught out like that before. So I like, go on then. So then, bing, ah, bing, ah. fine, you're great. Yeah, got the job. Wow. There we are. And that was an amazing experience, working in the West End with 35 incredible actors. That's it is definitely a dream. It's, um, it's, but it seems like the universe almost kind of like feels as if it kind of almost has a plan for you because there's not there's so many people and actors that I know who are sort of go to auditions and are and, and after time and time and time again and then you just get a phone call out the blue from John Thompson and you want to come and audition for a thing because you have put the time and you've put the effort in with what you do and you've uh, what's 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 the saying? Um, Reaped what I've sown. That'll do. That'll do. Was the saying. Um, but yeah, yes, I, guess so. I think there's, there's at the time was literally only one role in the West End that I was qualified to get, and it was that one. 
and blow me down with a feather, but it was a principal role in, you know, in the new London. It was amazing. But there was, even if I got myself a spotlight page and headshots and a showreel, if I went to the West End and auditioned for anything, I wouldn't get in anything else. Absolutely nothing, because I'm not qualified. And I also know the quality of the people who I was in the cast with. They, they were all completely sorted actors. They were amazing. And there, there were no drifters. There were no jokers. There were no... When I went into the first rehearsals, so that they do a rolling cast and about a third of the old cast were staying and two thirds were new. So there were about 20 of us in the new cast and we started rehearsing together before we met the old cast. And I thought, right, 20 people, that's enough for there to be an idiot. There's going to be one, isn't there? It's mm. sort of law of averages. There's going to be one guy you just think, um, and they weren't. They were not a single one. Just thought these are gorgeous people. And then we met the rest of the cast, the next sort of 15 of the existing cast and they came in and I thought right now we're up to 35 surely there's going to be an idiot here again they just weren't I mean I got really lucky because the cast of 2012 was full of them but um, <laughs> there you go I was out I was out of it by then yeah and um, yeah really really exceptional experience and yeah really lucky really lucky to just get you know a, a phone call as a, I don't consider myself an actor really um, because I because I've experienced really good acting. So yeah. I think, you know, it, a lot of people think it's a bit like that X Factor thing, isn't it? You know, because mum told you you singing in the shower is really good, you've gone on X Factor, and then Simon Carl's told you you're rubbish because yeah. you are. I think there's a there's a lot of that with acting as well. People people seem to think they can act. And, and all the, the skill set that goes into acting, it's not just about sort of pouring yourself out in the words that you're saying. It's it's all the physical stuff as well. It's, it's a huge amount going on. Mm. These people have a craft and they do. It's a bit like watching me play the squeeze box. People are going, how are you doing that? It's called practice, lots yeah. of it. Actors do the same thing. They go to drama school, they get yeah. great at it. Yeah. It's a very, very precise thing. And at the, Because at, at the moment, I'm considering kind of just exploring my acting a bit more. And um, yeah. But just uh, just yeah, having to look into courses and things. And if that's the route, the route that I really want to go down to, then I'd have to really commit to it. As I think real actors yeah. and people who do it as a as a full-time profession then it really takes an awful lot of work to be that precise but I've got over 20 years of film experience just as an extra so I've seen it happening a lot and I've done little bits and bobs but yeah um so did you not get the bug after being on stage did you not want to take it any further I was tempted and I found there were a couple of experiences that I had with the then National Theatre Producers who were pretty savage. We had, uh, we had a bunch of injuries and they decided that the best thing to do was to contravene the West End Agreement and fire a cast, um, which they weren't allowed to do. Uh, fortunately for us, they made an uh, administrative error and it got very public very quickly and they had to back down. Um, and so the, I just thought, actually, you care so little about these people, it's just literally the money. And, you know... The, uh, the New London Theatre was probably, what was it, uh, 1,550-seater at an average of 50 quid a ticket. You know, there's, there's a lot of money going on there. Um, and so they didn't, I never felt like the cast had the support of the powers that be, the, the upper echelons of the national were interested in the cash and not people. And I thought that's going to be like that through through a lot of that industry. It's... Um, it's going to be really difficult. I found things like getting a spotlight page, which is 500 quid, getting headshots, 500 quid, 
getting an agent, which is now impossible with with no track record. If I'd have done it straight after Warhorse, I might have got in. Um, I just thought, you know, but the real clincher actually was having done a year where I wasn't allowed to break the fourth wall, wasn't allowed to interact with the audience, and that's what that means, um, that I really missed that as a performer because being a folk musician like yourself, part of, I mean, a big part of our act is the repartee. It's our mm. interaction with the audience and our interactions with each other, which are shared with the audience. So, um, you know, making an in-joke include the whole audience is a skill and that's part of our craft. And I wasn't exercising that at all. I was literally, you know, I was in Devon in 1911. So uh, there we are in my head. And uh, I I really wanted to get back to properly gigging. And I thought, could I didn't really have the thousand pounds to sort of take a punt on it mm-hmm. and see if anything came in and I let it go. I thought, actually, I'm just going to go back to being a, a folk musician. And if acting wants me... Again, it'll come and find me. Um, and I have, I've been in a couple of films um, for, you know, 3.2 milliseconds here and there. I was in Little Stranger, Far From The Madding Crowd. Um, I, there is a cameo of me in Morris, A Life With Bells on, but you can't really see, you can't tell it's me. Yeah. But no idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've continued to be in things. So acting does occasionally come and find me, but not in the not in the same capacity because my my role in Warhorse was was immense. They um they took one look at me in wardrobe and and the directors and they said, "Oh, right, you're the same size and shape as the ensemble, so you're in the ensemble as well." And I was like, "What? Oh <laughs> man, I sing the songs." They're like, "Yeah, but you could you know you could uh, you could get blown up and." You could you could puppet a little horse and that could get blown up and you know stuff like that and you could you can run across the stage with a plow and then put webbing over it and make it look a trench you could do that can't you and I was like oh, do I get to say anything and I said oh yeah yeah if you wanna if you wanna join the ensemble you get to scream um, at one of the cast members in German every night and I was like oh I'm in <laughs> I'm in so give uh, me the line I love the line <laughs> oh it's brilliant. So bearing in mind that in my run of Warhorse, that Friedrich, who is the German sort of protagonist to Albert, who's the English, um, they're, the, they're the guys in the first and the second half who basically look after the horse. Uh, and um, there's a point in the second half where uh, the, the horses, Joey and Topthorn, the English army horses, British army horses, have been captured by the Germans and uh, they want to set them to work pulling an ambulance. But the um, the cavalry captain, Friedrich, who's been looking after them, knows full well that the one's a thoroughbred and the other one's a thoroughbred draft uh, cross and neither of them will take a collar. Um, so he's trying to point this out to uh, Colonel Strauss. Now, I played Colonel Strauss on a number of occasions. It wasn't I wasn't first... Uh, I wasn't principal Colonel Strauss. I was first cover. But I got I got to do him a lot. And he only had two lines, and they were both brilliant because the first one is really once you get the German, just barking it out is is so satisfying. Um, and then the follow up line is much more direct. And now you have to remember that Friedrich was being played by Ash from Casualty, mm. Patrick Robinson, um, an incredible actor, good friend, uh, good, all round good guy. But Ash from Casualty, from you know, from when I used to watch that when I was on the a kid. telly. <laughs> He's from the telly, He's yeah. From the actual telly. 
Well, he just finished the bill and his agent said, you've got to go and do a year of theatre and then we'll get you someone else. And, and that's when he went back to casualty as a consultant. Anyway, um, so he wasn't at medical, medical school becoming a consultant. He was in Wolves with me. Anyway, so so he, he um, Colonel Strauss uh, gets a request from from one of the foot soldiers saying we're making an ambulance and he looks around and he looks at Friedrich and he says which means harness the horses to the cart and then Friedrich goes goes off on this sort of couple of paragraphs worth of why that can't be and Colonel Strauss has none of this he's not interested he just looks at him and says and half the time I screamed it and sometimes I did it really camp but basically what I did was um, I just said just do it in German which is and a lot of the, like, the sound guys had a laugh because they yeah. never knew what I was going to do I never knew what I was going to do sometimes be right in his face loads of spit in his face you know we'd be in the wing afterwards to be like brilliant give it to me I want to get wet and uh, sometimes it would be is that, is that the camp one? That's the, that's the camp one. Oh, yeah. It's something it's about fun. German language and being camp. Uh, I think it's probably hello, hello. Yeah, absolutely. That's what comes to mind very much. Yeah. So for me, your biggest project, and most, um, and they're all quite successful. Well, I say they're all quite successful. The least successful is probably the ones that were involved together in the Women's <laughs> Union in Good England. Uh, we're, we're, we're working on it. We'll get there. Some we'll get somewhere sometime. <laughs> but the but the most successful project that I know that you work in is probably Faustus. Yeah, I think that's that's probably musically the most cohesive thing I've done over the years. I mean, I've I've always had a, a, a role somewhere with Eliza Carthy. Um, I actually I actually joined one of her bands by accident. Well, I wasn't concentrating. Um, she, after Wayward got um, let down financially by um, by the guy who used to run the company in Stroud, um, um, she's been trying to give most of us Wayward members work. And one of the ways she wanted to do that with me was she invited me to come and do uh, a support slot for her songwriting band, the Restitute Band, um, which was supposed to tour. It was the first tour that got cancelled in lockdown. That was supposed to be early April. And she said, um, come and do the sport, fine. And be really nice if you got up at the end and did like a couple of numbers at the end with that be really good. But it's not my trad set, it's my songwriting set. So you won't just be on a basket, you'll have to come and come and learn a couple of numbers. So I was like, Yeah, okay, that's fine, I'll come to rehearsal and learn learn whatever the last two are fine. And then um, I got there and, and the band that is doing the live stuff isn't quite the same band that recorded uh, because session musicians etc and mm. um, and so they they were trying to sort of divvy up the parts of, of stuff that had gone on these records and like they had this guy come in and do loads of bass clarinet and someone come in and do loads of cello and the, the lineup had guitar double bass he also played um tenor sax uh, drums keys and Eliza on fiddle and voice. So there was nothing that was really covering those lines. And so they, were, they all looked at me and went, you, you play that line. And then the accordion I've got has a really low voice voicing where it actually does sound like a bass clarinet because it's reeds, hmm. much like a bass clarinet. So it's fundamentally the same thing, just going about it in a slightly different way. And then before I knew it, they, they were like, you, you're in the band. You're in the band. You just are in the band because you're covering all that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I've joined Eliza Carthy and the Restitution, as it's called now, um, and I either play 
yeah, jazz stuff on, uh, it's all on accordion, but I'm either playing bass, clarinet lines, cello lines, or just jazz chords. So I just sit in the back and just jazz away. Nice. The accordion, which is brilliant. It's so different to what I normally do. There's no tunes. I can do a whole gig without sweating. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, but Faustus, yeah. So I, I think partly because the, there's only three of us, so it's quite portable. I think we all get on really well. We're mates. And that's really important. And um, I think we. one of the things about Faustus that I really like is um, I think that them, the other two are musically slightly better than I am. So slightly better educated, maybe slightly better practiced, all that stuff. And I think that they both think that in the same way that, uh, about the other. So we, we have an enormous amount of respect for each other. And then when it actually gets going, when we really are flying, um, you I trust we find ourselves in a place of musical trust where you can take you can take the music in any direction and everyone's listening and everyone's capable. So the music just goes with you. If you decide to naff off in a direction that's a bit silly, then the music gets quite silly. And if it so there's there's no point at which you think, I'd love to be able to do this, but I just don't think they'll be able to do it. You know, I don't think they're gonna come with us. And I've had that in bands over the years and um it's, it's all right, but it's quite frustrating. And in Faustus, there's none of that at all because I, I think I think they're both a bit better than I am. So if if I want to take the music in a direction, they'll they'll come come at it very easily. Mm. And and yeah, so it's it's been the most cohesive thing I've done. It's always been there, <clears throat> whereas other stuff has sort of come and gone and and had hiatuses or just been a little fizzy, like a big explosive project that then just dies like a firework or. <laughs> Stuff that's just you know, like, like our good England is great, but this mm. is sort of it's quite nebulous, isn't it? Because we don't really know what it is. It's just you doing your songs and me making it sound make, make it lush. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, pressing the lush button. So there's not, but we haven't recorded yet, which yeah. always formalizes things. That I think that'll that'll help a bit. I'll, that's on the agenda. So that's an yeah. exclusive to uh, to the Stu Simpson podcast. That the good England will record at some point. We definitely will. Yeah. We definitely will. There's. <laughs> There's me with a recording studio and everything. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully, I mean, my uh, film stuff will kind of quiet down in October, November. That'll be able to sort of get some dates and I'll let you know and we can get together and just sort of and have a hug. A hug would be nice. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and, and other projects that we're involved in, you've stopped, after all these years, you've started playing drums again. How is that for you? Well, it's the, it was all, it was all fun and games, right? The drums. Well, I got given a, a a 1961 Premier Black Pearl Olympic from a guy I've known for, for literally forever. Um, he was he was one of the drummers in the Morris Band in which I was playing. Record, he, he would have been playing side drum the day I was holding the squeeze box when my dad went to the loo and all my hair stood up and I decided to play the loo. So he's been around forever and ever. And uh, I got quite bored in the, it must have been the late 90s or early 2000s, early 2000s maybe. I just thought, right, it was during the sort of medical rapping time, so I wasn't playing much music. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get a drum kit. Why not? I'm going to get myself a drum kit. I had loads of cash, and I thought, yeah, go on. Just for a laugh, just to have something else musical to do. And one of the other musicians in the band we were both in had found one in the Harrow Observer. There was a, a Yamaha kit going for 85 quid, I think it was. And then he showed it to me and, and uh, Roger, my mate, overheard and said, what, what are you getting that for? And I was like, oh, I 
to some drums, you know, just have a laugh and play drums for years. Be good. He's like, you don't need to buy anything. Come around the garage. My wife will thank you for taking some of my crap away. So round I went, and out comes his first ever drum kit. And, it, you know, um, it's as old as the Beatles, this thing, you know? Wow. Yeah. Um, and so I had I had it for ages, and it's been in a couple of different lofts and a couple of different garages. Anyways, having joined Hex and Morris, um, firstly as a musician and then latterly as a dancer, that, that band, uh, that Morris team, decided to start up a Cayley band uh, called the Blue-Eyed Strangers with a, a really nice kind of um, raison d'etre, which was... Um, anyone that wanted to be in the band, if you were a proficient musician, you joined on your second instrument. And if you were a novice, you joined on your first instrument and you got stage experience. So you either improved your second instrument or you got an introduction to performance. So it was very much a sort of inclusive and um, educational thing to do. And I MD'd it for a laugh and played the drums. Now, playing the drums in a cave band is really easy because everything has a four-bar introduction and it's it's in multiples of eight. So mostly the tunes are 32 bars long. And if they're not, they're 48 bars long. And they're in the time signatures of six, eight, four, four, and three, four. So that's um, jigs, reels, and, and walks. Yeah. yeah. And occasionally the odd slip jig. But um, that's just, that's like uh, a jig and a half. Think of it like that. Anyway, um, and so, but they're always, they're really sort of square forms and, and really easy. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, um, so playing the drums in a caveman is a walk in the park. You just, as long as you have a vague sense of rhythm and you can sort of vaguely play a drum kit, even slightly competently, you're going to sound great in a caveman. And then, so I made this record in my studio um, for this band, right, called Hadrian's Union. And, uh, and it, yeah. it came. Good record, good record. And then, and then there was a bit of internal politics, as there quite often is with these things. Mm. And uh, the drummer parted company with the band. And I rather glibly said, Stu, to you, I'll drum in your Kaylee band, and uh, expecting you to go, now we'll find someone that can play the drums. You said, yeah, great. And then I think you said, got a gig in three weeks' time. Uh, I do that sort <laughs> of thing. banter. Yeah. at Hayden Bridge Community Centre. So that was, it was a really steep learning curve. Now, the thing about Hadrian's Union, um, listeners, is that um, it's a proper band. It's like a punk pop folk band. Mm. And the songs have incredible arrangements and, like, structures that are uh, obvious within the song. But if you just count it out, you'd be like, okay, right, okay, so sorry, there's four of those, and then there's a thing where it does that, and then there's three of those then, is there? Right, okay, and then there's a stop. Right, and then it does that, and then it goes into that time signature, but only for a little bit, and then it comes back, and then there's four of those again, and then there's three, but then there's another three, and then it stops. Okay, right, okay, and sorry, what pattern was it? So it's just an absolute uh, brain melter, to be honest. Really, one of the most musically difficult things I've ever done was to leap into a folk rock band playing drums. Ridiculous. I, I had no idea. Honestly, yeah, didn't. There you go. yeah. Well, I'm I'm part, I'm getting assessed for ADHD, so now we kind of understand why maybe the song structures are so bizarre. I know it turns out pop songs are are, are generally weird in structure. It's it's absolutely fine. It's just like if if I were playing if I were playing Squeezebox in Hayden Union, to be honest, I wouldn't need very much rehearsal. I think I'd be fine without blowing my own trumpet. Um, 
I'm pretty good at squeeze box. I already know that. I do it for a job. But you don't get to do it for a job unless you already are quite good, right? Okay, so that, that for me is a bit of a given. No, the, no, the drums, you know, just even, even like doubling up what, like your kick drum foot, just double that up within the pattern that you've always played, right? But double that bit. What? How? And then you practice and it turns out practice. Yeah, that's, that's the one. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's, it's fun. I've, I've got my kit up in, in, in Castle Carrick and I've not, so I've been mostly in London for, for since May and I'm really kind of just missing bashing. The, the living daylights out of out of some skins. <laughs> it's 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 good therapy. I, I would never I say never. Part of me kind of doesn't would never want to join a band as a drummer because I kind of I, I like being at the front. And, yeah. and if I see somebody at the front kind of just go, and I'm like, no, I could do it much better. But unless unless there was another great front man, and then I was kind of going, all right, I'm fine. But um yeah, I like I like it up at the front. No pun intended. <laughs> um, so as um what you've played on so many major stages with a number of different bands, uh, mostly around the sort of the folk genre. But what would you say is your favourite band that you've played in, and on what stage? Really, really hard question to answer. Um, I can tell you my favourite gig. Yeah, my favourite ever gig was um, Towersy, twenty ten Rat Weasel. Un- unlikely because. Kaylee's Kaylee's a really funny thing. So you spend all this time working music out, and then <clears throat> um, because of the nature of Kaylee's, you get a caller, and a caller tells the dancers what to do, and they instruct the dance through uh, vocally with no music, and it's just walked through, and then the band starts, and the con- caller continues to talk over your music. So if you're new to Kaylee, you're like, "What the hell is this?" You know, we spent hours rehearsing this. You know, you know, months writing this music, and you're talking over it. Every now and again, Kaylee bands that are vaguely proficient get to go and do concerts, and we were booked um, at Towersy 2010 to do the final concert. Um, and at Towersy, they always finish the festival with um, Hey Jude hmm. and the Long and Winding Road. And the previous two years, the band that had gone on last had done Hey Jude themselves and then let Long and Winding Road get played through playback. And God love them, they've done all right, but I was convinced that we could do it better. Um, and yeah, we got, we got on stage and we did a Kaylee and it was it got a bit out of hand because the, the festival at that time was very close to Tame in uh, Oxfordshire and on a bank holiday Monday night, they, the youth of Tame could get in for a quid um, and they you know they'd been at the source and so they were all quite inebriated and so the Kaylee was a bit of a mess and we were wondering if it was going to be a good gig and then the Kaylee bit ended and the concert bit started and uh, we we had a concert set with a bunch of songs in it <clears throat> all very traddy um, but quite, you know it was a good band good lineup at that time um, and uh, so off we went into our concert set and it was it was really good. We could feel that the energy in the room had picked up and people were getting into it. And then we got towards the end and uh, we'd decided that before we did Hey Jude, we were going to do It Must Be Loved by Madness because Wack Weasel's Kaylee set is heavily influenced by Madness, particularly their early stuff. Mm. Um, and I've tried to sort of steer... We've got an album that's been in the... Well, it's in the can, but it just hasn't been released because COVID. Yeah. Um, 
and that's I've tried to steer that back towards that kind of cheeky sort of two-tone scarry feel yeah. and we thought right well if we're going to do a cover of something from Madness let's do it must be love because it's gorgeous and we we had uh, we had a trombone band at the time so we had this perfect instrumentation to do to do all that stuff as well as the two tennis axes and I swear to God I I had a little epiphany because we'd done we'd done our sort of very traddy song set and very uppy, very bouncy, all good. And then Heather, my partner, who's the keyboard playing that was started playing the opening lines of It Must Be Laughing. Audience went mental. I mean they literally didn't know what to do with themselves. They they were they, here's one we know. Yeah. And I opened my mouth to sing and I I had an epiphany in that moment which was I finally understood why people who play arenas, you know, that level, um, then get in the tour bus and snort and swallow and inject and do all the things that they do to try and prolong the high. Because this this happened to me in a very brief moment and I was completely electrostatically charged by mm. it. I became, I became about 25 feet tall because I opened my mouth to, to sing the words to It Must Be Love I never thought that I and three and a half thousand people. That's that's who was there. It's quite a big audience in the scheme of things. Three and a half thousand. Every single person sang it back at me, and all the hair on my body stood on end. Yeah. And I, was just, I didn't know if I was going to be able to continue because I was a bit kind of rabbit in the headlights with it. I was like, "What the hell is this? How do they know it all?" <laughs> we to learn this anyway. And that happened right the way through that song, and then right the way through "Hey Jude," and I was on such a high when we came off the stage. Fortunately for me, my partner had to go um, back to med school the following morning. So I had to drive. I had to finish that gig, pack my stuff up, get in the car and drive her back to County Durham so she could start at the James Cook in Middlesbrough at 8 o'clock. Wow. So that was back down to earth with a massive crash. But in that moment, I thought, wow, this, I could see how people would just get totally addicted to this. This is like a drug. This is like a drug. It's just, it's just like all kinds of recreational drugs that I may or may not have ever taken. And I could see how that once you've had that moment, you just want it all the time. And then all of a sudden you're just in the two of us or in a hotel room and it's yeah. and it's just your stinky bandmates. You're like, where's where's the adoring love? You know? <laughs> yeah. And now all I have now is a Ginter's pasty. That's all I have left. Exactly. Yeah. And sweat pants. And uh, yeah, I just I thought that was one of the best gigs I've ever done. I mean, you know, I've played Glass and Rail, played Botford, I've played Junuta Festival in Belgium, which is like Glastonbury on Euro acid. It's amazing. <laughs> Played, I've played in Japan, I've played in Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada, all around the world, all around the world. Been there, done all that. And then there I was at a festival I've been going to since I was two years old. And uh, and it blew my own socks off and I was on stage. Absolutely amazing. Um, I love all my bands. There's sort of, they're, there's levels of, of um, how hard the gig is by how much I have to do. So Faustus, and I have to say, Hadrian Julian on drums, because I'm trying to sing backing vocals at the same time as yeah, yeah. drums. And that's that's like, oh, wow, okay, here's another level. But Faustus is, is sort of full mental capacity. So the way I play my squeeze box in Faustus, up there, the melody side and the bass side, uh, I try and separate them as much as possible. So they're doing two independent things at the same time. And I'm singing uh, quite often a line that I'm not playing. 
So it's quite difficult um, because the harmonies in Faustus are sort of, we've tried to model it on, I don't know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young, that kind of um, really, or Beach Boysy kind of stuff, but quite folky. So imagine a folky version of those. That's what the vocals are like in mm. Faustus. So the harmonies are quite close together, often quite clashy and dissonant and often quite different to what you're actually playing. Um, so I've got two different rhythms going on on the squeeze box uh, and and singing a different line over the top of that. So that's like mental, full yeah, on yeah. mental capacity. And then if you strip that back to a whack weasel, Kaylee, that's the, the opposite end of things. The melodies are challenging, but I don't play the bass end of my squeeze box with whack weasel because we've got two tenor saxophones, keyboards, guitar, sometimes sit-in, and bass guitar, and all of those, and drums. So all of those things are dominating that part of the, of the harmonic um, spectrum. So I don't want to muddy it with my left hand because there's no point. So I just play the right hand and I don't sing. I don't, there's no talking. It's just, just playing actually with the right hand. So that's like the, probably the easiest gig I do, mm. but also one of the highest energy. And then, you know, and then there's us, Stu, in Good England, yes. where I'm just pressing the lush button. Quite often, I'm just playing two chords really nicely over a whole song and then a tiny little bit of light backing vocals. And that's, and, the, that's, and a good bit of banter. And well, there's always, there's always going to be banter, but musically, that's a really easy thing for me to do. But it's very effective. So I like them all. They're all. I love how every band I'm in has a different amount of complexity and requires a different intensity. And uh, you know, whether it's musically complex or musically simple, that doesn't matter. Um, best piece of advice musically I ever got was from bass player Ben Nichols, who's in Seth Lakers both months, lots of others. Um, and his advice was timing and tone. There isn't anything else. That's a good motto for life, I think. Time of yeah. timing and tone. So, what's what's next for Saul? What happens next for you? What's on the agenda? Uh, well, I finally get to go on tour again, um, in sort of early to mid September with Eliza and the Restitution. Going to go and do that. Going to be doing the support, and then sat at the back playing my little jazz lines. And then I've got a few gigs coming up with McLean Colston, who plays an utterly fascinating instrument called the Hammond Dulcimer. And uh, worth a Google, Hammond Dulcimer, if you can't be bothered to Google, is a trapezoid table with piano strings strung across two bridges. It looks like an enormous egg slicer. And you hit it with little wooden hammers. Um, and if you've ever seen Bagpuss, you'll be familiar with the noise. Um, and uh, yeah, he and I are a, are a duo. I mean, lots of duos, they're good. Mm. And uh, yeah, we've got a few gigs in September. And then, uh, well, I'm quite free in October and November, Stu, so we should record Good England then. That sounds like a plan to me. I like Brilliant. that. I like that. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so if people want to get in touch with you and find out more about Sorrows, other than your Wikipedia page, because <laughs> we do yeah. have a Wikipedia, that's a very cool thing, where should they look? <laughs> Uh, so, well, I was uh, I was doing a gig the other day with Eliza and it was being live streamed and my parents were watching it and um, my my dad's an IT guy. And uh, so Eliza was introducing the band. She said, this is Dave Dadar and um, where would people go to find find out more about you? And he went, well, Dave, davedalar.co.uk, you know, that's my website and everything's up there. So, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then she looked at me and I went, yeah, well, look, I'm the son of an IT director, so I don't have a website. And then, um, bless him, my dad, within about 40 minutes of me finishing the gig, said, uh, right, I've done the, f I've fleshed out, I've gone into WordPress, I've started it, uh, he'd started making the website. So it would oh, be wow. sawroad.co.uk. I think it probably just says 
you know website under development at the moment because he's waiting for me to give it some content but yeah. uh, be there i do i uh i am on facebook i don't have facebook messengers so i, I don't respond to messages but if you just write on my page i'll, I'll get back to you you know this, that's that in the short term that's the easiest way to get hold of me yeah well if anybody who's listening wants to get in touch with Sol and he's not responding to you then get in touch with me and i'll pass the message on <laughs> oh yeah that's that's even better <laughs> I, I, I won't charge you for talking. <laughs> and but yesterday, I've just as, as an aside because this would be the Towersy weekend, and uh, yeah. my next door neighbour's Bill and Mary had a mini Towersy festival in their back garden. Uh, I got cute. the headline. <laughs> yeah, you got the headline. That's brilliant. Yeah, I've seen a few uh, a few uh, mini Towersies going on around the country. Pretty sweet. Excellent. Yeah. And it was it was this year was going to be Good England's debut at Towersy, but maybe next year. Who knows. Okay, lots of love and take care and um, see you soon. Yeah, let's work something out. We will. Namaste, my friend. Namaste.